So we actually have, for example, a study where people go on a real museum tour and some people take photos and some people don't. And the ones who take photos, they remember more of the visual artifacts and the details of the museum, but they remember less of the things that the tour guide told them or said. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, The Brain and Brand Show, where you'll hear science and inspiration from guests like neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart. Hey guys, I'm so excited to share with you a conversation with New York University professor Alexandra Barish. Her latest paper shows you may want to rethink how your brain experiences an event while you're creating content. Welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm your host, Timothy Maurice, and in line with this show's mission, today we delve into research about how the brain experiences content creation to overturn long-held beliefs that being on your phone somehow reduces your experience of an event. My guest today, Professor Barish, has just published a paper along with her co-author, Gabrielle Tonietto, entitled, Generating Content Increases Enjoyment by Immersing Consumers and Accelerating Perceived Time. Whether you're a marketer or a content creator, there's a bucket load of insight that will help you design content to enrich the bond between creator and brand. Also, the best part about this episode is Barish is so committed to the science and data that you'll leave with plenty of perspective for both yourself as well as understanding the posting patterns of those closest to you. Enjoy. Alexandra Barish, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thank you. Are you in New York right now? For this year, I'm doing a visiting uh, a visiting stay at another university in, uh, at INSEAD. So it's in it's based outside Paris in Fontainebleau. I split my time between New York and, and France. So the time difference is not so stark. I was going to say, when I noticed where you were calling from, I was actually like, huh, we, we had a, a range of times we could have played with, for sure. You've done research all over the world. I saw where you've researched in... Asia, mainland Asia, and Hong Kong, and you did your undergraduate work in North Carolina. Tell us a little bit about your, what got you into this sort of research interest and uh, how these regions of the world has impacted your thinking about it. Yeah, that's a great start. Um, So you said I got uh, my undergraduate at Duke, um, North Carolina, and during that time, um, as you're kind of exploring for any liberal arts education, I found uh, the field of psychology to be immensely fascinating. Um, and I took a lot of classes in psych. And I started realizing that there was this cool world outside of the more applied counseling side um, sides of psychology that you could actually do uh, cutting edge research that actually uncovers new information about consumers and about humans and their and the way they make decisions. Uh, after graduating, went to New York and did um, education policy research for a couple of years. Um, but then I started really learning about the field of behavioral economics, um, and that took me towards the um, towards the field of marketing, which is where most kind of behavioral uh, economics research is based in the university system. Um, I went to uh, do a Fulbright scholarship in Hong Kong and Macau, where I got a chance to 
uh, explore kind of more specific research topics. And you asked about the connection to, you know, how does like the studying these things in different cultures affect my, my work. And it was really there in Hong Kong that I, I got this really cool chance to see how the, East and the West and the um, and the merging of cultures with the British influence, um, and then I started grad school and I went to I went to Philadelphia for that at University of Pennsylvania and so yeah the the international exposure has influenced my research quite a bit. You know, doing your undergrad at Duke, right across campus, I'm sure was Dan O'Reilly. Yeah, at, Dan. at the business school. Have you guys had a chance to meet each other? Yeah, he was a key for get, getting me into the field. Dan Ariely, um actually arrived right, uh, I think I was a sophomore at the time. Um, and I went to one of his big keynote speeches, like, you know, this new amazing professor from MIT is here and we're going to, you know, hear from him. Um, and I was like, literally just watching his presentation was like, now I know this is what I want to do. And he uh, got me into research. He connected me with people. He's He was connecting me with people um, during my time in New York um, at, right after undergrad. And then those individuals were kind of instrumental to getting me into, you know, into PhD programs. So Dan Ariely, I, I credit him a lot to being here and having uh, the chance to work on such cool stuff. And he's obviously the king of working on cool stuff. So uh, yeah, he is amazing. Let's kind of take a step back a little bit. I mean, I get so excited about this type of work and behavioral economics and behavioral psychology that I jump ahead. For anyone listening to this who's not familiar with your work and they just kind of generally want to know, what do you say you do when you meet someone at a bar or just randomly? In general, I would say my research is studying how new technologies reshape the way that consumers are experiencing their lives. Um, so this comes from uh, their enjoyment and immersion in experiences. It comes from their memories of their experiences. And it also comes in their communication and their social connection with other individuals. Um, so new technology can be a number of different um, types of behaviors of ranging from photo taking, content creation, uh, live streaming, um, social media usage, um, all of these things. I'm just interested in how these new forums and these new technologies are shifting the way that we we experience the world. So if we go back through our evolutionary background and we look at our ancestors, would their tools in terms of being able to carve something in a rock be very similar in terms of us posting now? That is interesting. So yeah, to the extent that um, carving into rocks is um, is about uh, documenting, it's about um, communicating. I, probably those two dimensions are the, I'd say the key, if you, if you ask people, why do you take photos? Why do you create content? It's either for your personal goals, so to document or remember something, or it's to share and communicate with others. And so uh, to the extent that these are kind of the basic like private versus public trade-offs, um, you know, these cavemen were thinking about their uh, their cave carvings probably very similarly. Staying at that point, we, we go back through our evolutionary background and we fast forward to today. 
what our ancestors have been as eager to communicate are our instincts because we're so social is the technology really just enabling us to do what we already wired to do or are we evolving and shifting that is really interesting you know the number of people can observe our content is just on a level that you know our ancestors would have no they wouldn't even make sense to them um, is is probably changing the way that we're going through our experiences. It's changing the approach that we take and how much we want to document and share. Um, and yeah, it might be amplifying the the social uh, you know tendencies that we already had. Um, it's at least it's at least making them more salient all the time um, because it's like you you never it, it's feeling more and more like you're never quite alone. Um, everything can be recorded and shared at any time. So, so that's, that's a really interesting point. I can see that shifting for sure. Yesterday I went to our local Starbucks in South, South Africa has only had Starbucks for a couple of years. So <laughs> there's still a lot of cachet around posting your Starbucks coffee. Right. But as I was, as I was writing yesterday, I, I looked up and I saw this young woman, she walked in and she was really dressed to post <laughs> she had mm-hmm. she had this Gucci headband on. <laughs> she, you know, she was really dolled up. And she orders some sort of frappuccino and right. a chocolate chip cookie. She grabs her chocolate chip cookie. She goes outside in front of the Starbucks sign. Uh-huh. And and she finally finds someone who can do the photo shoot. Right. And she takes the cookie and she puts it close to her mouth. This photo shoot begins to happen. She grabs this older person and she directs them around and so forth. And what was fascinating was after the photo shoot, she throws away the the cookie and the frappuccino. She never (laughs) intended to actually have it. And in that moment, I was thinking, this is just sheer raw content. Perhaps the ability to create that content created a pleasure that the actual Frappuccino wouldn't have been able to create for her. Mm-hmm. And I'm, this is why I'm interested in your work. So let's go into your paper. Yeah. So let's talk about how generating content increases enjoyment. Right. right. Yeah, that's great. I love, I love your story and how it relates to the paper. So, so first of all, yeah, that we are, we were really interested in whether and how um, content generation, which by that we just mean the, um, the kind of creation of any um, text or photos, uh, generating content about a relevant experience um, as you're going through it, which is really key because, you know, so much content we can create after the fact, but we were interested in how does, in the moment of doing this content creation, how does that change your experience? How does it change um, the way that you, the, the details that you notice in the experience? How does it change your uh, feelings of immersion or engagement, and then uh, subsequently, how does that affect your enjoyment of the moment? And so, like you kind of pointed out in your story, there's um, you know just this raw behavior that we we're doing all the time, um, and uh, technology has enabled it. So we have our smartphones in our pockets all the time. We're always able to text or write on social media or take a note for ourselves. Um, in a way that we just wouldn't have done, uh, you know, a decade or two decades ago. Given that so many people talk about 
you know, the negatives of these things the, the media loves to, you know, tell you, you got to put your phone away or you're, you're ruining your life. Um, you know, we hear that <laughs> from our family. Uh, we, you know, there's, and there's certainly times where, where that is, you know, disruptive. Um, but we couldn't help but ignore just the quantity of data that was being created. And we're like, there must be something that's actually benefiting consumers or people in these contexts. And so we, we set out to study it. The general takeaway across dozens of studies that we've run is that, um, is that this behavior can actually be quite immersive. So to, you know, to your point, again, this frappuccino and chocolate chip cookie was, that wasn't the end the, you know, the end goal of her experience. It was, um, it was about generating content. It was about taking photos, probably posting and sharing something. My, my research would suggest that that could potentially be uh, an enjoyable um, thing for her. I mean, of course, there's some other dimensions that come into play. And we can talk about that too. And the, the self-presentational concern that comes with um, anxiety and all these things about, you know, getting enough likes and shares and, and comments. Um, those things also play a role. But in terms of like just boiling it down to the behavior itself, there's a lot of, uh, of our work that would suggest that's, uh, that can be an enjoyable experience. Yeah, I have two people in mind with this conversation. Yeah. One is the content creator, but also the marketers and brands yep. who yep. are interested in your research. So Let's say you are Red Bull and you have a massive event that you have organized and it's, it's next to a basketball court and you bring all these people out. Are you basically saying that if you and if Red Bull sets up an experience mm-hmm. and they get people there to create content mm-hmm. that the, in the creation, the immersion of that creation, you create additional value. Can you unpack that a little bit for Red Bull? Yeah, that's, you summarize it great, uh, but just to kind of unpack it, I would say there's kind of different components that Red Bull would want to think about. Um, so there is, of course, the content creation itself as a source of value for companies, for brands, because for them, having people post and share is a metric that they care about. So, so I'm actually putting that aside in my research because of course, brands would like for people to be talking about them and, you know, either, either positive or negative. Um, oftentimes we say all, all of these conversations are good for brands, but, um, but separate from that, how does the behavior or action of the content creation itself influence those people's experience of the event? People are creating the content. If, if Red Bull can, um, can encourage content creation, let's say through an incentive program, uh, rewarding consumers, giving them raffles for the content creation. Maybe they can do it through hashtags and other types of engagement uh, tools to get people to to want to post and to share. Uh, maybe they can do it through normative messaging. So uh, telling people that um, it's really common. We we actually expect a lot of people to share. That increases behavior. So re- regardless of what their tool is for for encouraging it, um, if they get their consumers to actually uh, create more content, uh, our research would suggest that that itself can actually be immersive. And the reason is because you're you have to search the event for things to comment on. So whenever I'm just watching something, my mind can wander. Um, I might be thinking of something irrelevant to the experience. 
but there's something really powerful about creating content that forces your attention onto the event. It, it makes you perceive things you might not have otherwise seen it. And you might hear new sounds, you might notice new details. And that process is really powerful for immersing or engaging people in the moment. And it's something that usually people can um, kind of relate to once they they think about the the difference between relevant content creation and irrelevant content creation. So if I'm, if I was Red Bull and I was asking you to post about something totally random and not relevant to the event, your mind would be elsewhere. But if I'm looking at the, you know, motorcycle drivers or the, whatever the event is, there's some skydivers or something that's actually getting me to be more engaged. And that's um, something that we find across dozens of experiences from uh, from safari tours to watching TV that people when they are noticing these kind of these extra details and it's a relatively positive experience that it increases their enjoyment um, and I would expect Red Bull to care a lot about how um, consumers enjoy the moment um, in addition to kind of their memories and that and enjoyment of course, translates into long-term effects as well. People talk about things and share, and those are also metrics that Red Bull cares about. You did a lot of your research both in the lab and outside the lab. Can you talk a little bit about how you structured your research to get this data? Yep. Um, So yeah, that's really important to us. We use uh, field studies to kind of get uh, data with kind of higher ecological or external validity Um, sometimes this data is more correlational in nature. So we're not actually looking at experiments there. We're just observing. We're sometimes we're just collecting data from Twitter, what people are talking about. Sometimes we're, we're surveying people in the field, but, uh, but we, we always want to with, uh, with a research question like this, like you have to go out there and get real, real world experiential data. It's just not enough to just look in the laboratory. Um, But at the same time, it's not enough to just look in the field um, because when you're, you're in the kind of messy real world, it's, it's hard to isolate the effect um, that you're looking at. We're really interested in causal data that suggests that when I create content, uh, when I do X, Y will happen. So when I create content, um, enjoyment will will increase. Um, so in the lab, we can get a lot more control. Um, but it's really important to have both. And all of my work in this area um, always has a mixture of both lab and field studies for that reason. It, were there any findings that surprised you? Oh, that's a good one. I'm, I mean, to be honest, going into the into the original like body of work, which really started back in grad school, I came in, you know, influenced by the by the media and the and the intuitions that we talked about earlier. So um, maybe if I'm taking all of these pictures, it's coming in between me and the experience. You know, there's like a physical barrier, and and I'm I'm potentially if I'm taking so many pictures, it's crowding out my ability to enjoy the moment, and so. I would say that my collaborators and I um, definitely had, um, you know, mixed opinions about our first set of data because it, it was kind of hard to accept at first. There was a lot of kind of push to like find find data that would, you know, be consistent with all of these kind of negative intuitions. But in the end, you kind of also have to 
to listen to what your data says. And, and at some point after um, so many studies um, showing that photo taking or content creation, um, it, it increases the, the kind of engagement and immersion and enjoyment of experiences. And also in this other, this new paper, uh, we look at time perception. So um, how, how quickly time seems to pass. Like it, when you're doing these behaviors, like time speeds up, it makes you feel kind of, um, you know, extra immersed into the, into the moment. And so you, as a result, like you kind of lose track of time. We call that a flow state. Um, and so there were all of these kind of effects that we, at some point we had to accept uh, what the data was showing us. Um, but I would say that at first we were, we were surprised for sure. <laughs> I'm imagining you, are you speaking at a conference hosted by Sam Harris and a bunch of mindfulness oh experts? <laughs> right, right. Man, I wonder what they think of our, of our data. Yeah. Um, Wait, but let's, let's get to the crux of what sure. the data, what the data dispels. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always, I think I'm even guilty of speaking to my niece by saying, yeah. you're missing the moment, you're not present, yeah. et cetera. What, what does the data specifically dispel? Yeah, I'd say that um, I think it helps to actually see the distinction between when it helps and when it hurts as a way to help figure out what it dispels. So um, so there's a lot of work suggesting that when we get on our phones, it can become a disruptive part of the experience. So so there's a cognitive element to that. Um, so I'm now I'm paying attention to the phone instead of, maybe our conversation. Um, and there's a social component to that. Um, so how do you feel if I'm on my phone? It, it make it's definitely not, um, it, it can be distracting. It can make you feel like I'm not fully engaged or immersed in our, in our conversation or the moment, you know, so much of this previous work actually has really focused on um, when people are on their phones, engaging in tasks that are conflicting with the goals of the moment. They're conflicting with the fact that we're having a social interaction, they're conflicting. It's like I'm multitasking. I'm trying to do something else with my phone and that takes me out of the moment. So that that's very fair. There's a lot of data that suggests that that can be harmful. Um, what I think our research comes in and, and points out and is really, really important is that so much of the content creation that we engage in is actually very relevant to the moment. Uh, we're commenting or reacting or or sharing with somebody who isn't there or, you know, even talking to somebody next to us who is there. Um, and there's so much of these behaviors that we do that are actually not in direct conflict with the moment. And those are the types of content creation behaviors that I would encourage. Um, the types of photo taking, I mean, photo taking is oftentimes very relevant to the moment because you can't take photos of something that's not in front of you. And so that's where the research actually started. And now, even with the, you know, content, the phone is distracting. Yes, it can be for sure. But what our data dispels is that it's always distracting, that there's no way you can use the phone or the or these tools, um, these new technological tools in a way that enhances the moment. Um, it just depends on the way that you do it. I mean, this is an important part of the conversation because yeah, whatever's happening in the moment and the goals of all the stakeholders and all the parties involved need to be aligned, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And yes, sometimes the consumer's goals are different from, say, the company's goals. But 
in general, companies would like it if consumers enjoyed their moments more. Um, and yes, sometimes there's two consumers involved and one wants to focus on the experience and one wants to be distracted with their cell phone. And, and that's a conflict too. But um, in general, like we're, we're all pretty much looking towards um, yeah, greater enjoyment and, um, and experiential consumption. How can we enhance those things? I want you to comment on a couple scenarios. The first scenario, I remember being at a Jay-Z concert uh-huh. in New York, in New York, actually. And I saw the branding around and people were videoing and they were, you know, posting while he was performing. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, the brands are really benefiting from this. But he's not. And as I was thinking that, he says, could you please put your phones away and enjoy the concert? Right. right. What would you say in that moment? Because that's a classic case of misalignment. Yeah, Yeah, different stakeholders, right. Um, Yeah, so the brands are certainly benefiting from that and they are studying that immensely um, and how exactly like how to quantify the, the extra engagement that they get from those behaviors. But from the perspective of the artist, um, I think that's a really good point. Uh, I I do feel conflicted about um, about that because there's some parts of the consumer experience that can become better from from creating content, from taking photos. Um, but there but there are trade offs, and and actually in the earlier photo taking work, we show a direct trade off between how photos enhance your memory for visual details, and they engage you kind of in, of course, the perceptual details that you're noticing in your visual field. But there's a direct trade off with anything auditory. So so we actually have, for example, a study where people go on a real museum tour. And some people take photos and some people don't. And the ones who take photos, they remember more of the visual artifacts and the details of the museum, but they remember less of the things that the tour guide told them or said. And so to the extent that a Jay-Z concert or any concert really is an largely an auditory uh, experience because we're trying to listen to music and lyrics, um, then Jay-Z really had a good point. Uh, putting down the devices would mean that you'd be more attuned to the auditory details of that experience. Um, he might be missing or forgetting some of the other benefits, uh, of course, because he's he's thinking about his music. But um, but I can see that sort of trade off and um, and where where uh, artists and and musicians would actually prefer that people put away their devices. And I think that's that's <laughs> interesting and, and also fair. <laughs> Okay, the second scenario, when I'm home for Thanksgiving and my parents and my niece are at loggerheads about what to do with this phone, Uh would you suggest to my parents to get my niece to post about the food? And maybe that could immerse her in the moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. That's so fun. Um, Yeah, maybe maybe that's like a good trade-off or a good uh, compromise, I would say. Where, uh, yeah, niece, I'm guessing, is, is younger, so she probably doesn't like to give up her device. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the way that you're using that device really matters. So post about the food, you know, tell your friends about what we're doing here. Um, I guarantee that if she, if she uses the phone in that way, instead of, you know, her side conversations, that she would actually end up wanting to put the phone down because she would be 
becoming more immersed and engaged in some moment that she's talking about. All right. Let's talk a little bit about more about what's happening in the brain when it comes to in, in the content creation experience. Yeah. yeah so we, um, in the earlier work, we do have eye tracking data. And I think that's our closest insight into what is, I would say, the mechanism behind these, um, behind these effects. Um, and so what we, what we find in this earlier work is that when people are, for example, taking photos, but content creation would fit into the same category. When people are, are doing these content creation behaviors, um, they're, um, becoming more honed in on details relevant to the experience. So they're less likely to look around or see other irrelevant things that don't have to do with the moment. Um, when you're, when you're, forcing people's attention, essentially. It's a very attentional and perceptual mechanism. Um, when you're forcing people to notice things about their surroundings, they are, they're able to kind of put some of those other aspects, the mind wandering side of, um, of their uh, psyche out of their, out of uh, their mind. And so that's where we see all of the positive effects of immersion coming from. It's interesting that you mentioned kind of the mind or sorry, the mindfulness people, because we actually um, at the end of our paper talk about how, you know, mindfulness is always about being present. And, um, and while, you know, of course, like a, a side behavior feels like it might not be relevant, we're suggesting that the content creation is actually very much focusing your mind on the moment. Um, it's causing you to wow. actually shift your attention to the, the relevant details. And so in that sense, the, the brain is more sharp and focused and thinking about, about the moment instead of all the millions of things that we have on our mind and why we can't sleep at night. Any thoughts around for, you know, as the world continues to turn the page from this COVID 19 moment and the effects of technological disruption create a bit of a hybrid event style where Hmm. many events will go back to being in person, but a lot will be online. Yeah. Any thoughts? Yeah. Any thoughts around how to keep people's attention and how to create, you know, if I'm in a conference, is there a way to get people more immersed in the experience? Love it. Yeah. That's a great, thing to think about. I, so first of all, so much of our, so many of our studies, because they happen in the lab, we actually have a real kind of content creation happening in these virtual environments, which seemed like it could have potentially been uh, a weakness of our, of our research, you know, maybe a year ago, but is now very much the way that we're going through experiences. We go to the zoo virtually, you know, we're doing so many things. online. Um, and so, so here we actually have like real, um, you know, software that allows people to create content on the screen. So I'm watching an experience, but I'm also typing about it. And maybe I have different ways to ask you to do that. But, um, but in general, uh, these hybrid events that you're, you're referring to, I think could very much benefit from uh, building in content creation into their platforms um, maybe it is with sharing with other consumers, but I would say even just like give people a spot to take notes. I mean, we're, we're never really connecting people in our studies. We don't want to add the noise. Um, we're just getting people to write about the moment and it is super consistent 
and how much it increases their, their enjoyment. So, um, so that could be one takeaway, um, in terms of, uh, these kind of future events that are going to be created. I mean, conferences is a, another great example you mentioned. It's, um, you know, you don't want to be rude to speakers, of course, and make them feel like you're not listening, but so much of the time when I'm on my phone, I'm taking notes. I'm, you know, and that's actually means that I'm more engaged and, and thinking about what they're saying. So it's something we've actually talked to um, conference organizers and event and event creators before COVID um, about how you might build into these like conference platforms and um, apps and stuff, how to, how to get people to engage more. So it might be that our, our research is very timely for the, for the COVID environment that, um, that this might be the perfect time to kind of embrace and adopt these things and um, realizing that, um, that the devices are not going away and we can, as long as we can get people to use them in an enhancing way instead of a distracting way, it would, it would benefit everybody. Uh, what are your thoughts about the future of the ability to immerse yourself with technology? Huh, yeah, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, like these, um, oh yeah, augmented reality. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's a a great future direction for this work and for, yeah, thinking about how these things will influence these uh, experiences moving forward because so much of what's being developed, you know, it's not just about total virtual reality. I'm in a world that I, you know, is, is totally made up or um, is, you know, is, fantasy it's it's about enhancing the experience that you're in um it's about noticing new details and um you know as i walk down the street i can actually sort of observe my surroundings more closely um so much of the new technologies whether it's like just looking through my phone at the real world or with the glasses so much of that is really about just kind of enhancing the way that we live our lives i think as we move towards a close let, let's come up with a few tips based on the data that brands should be thinking about let's okay. see if we can come up with three interesting i mean we, yeah. you've already given us a lot so thank you so much mm-hmm. but any other insights can we come up with yeah. three that brands should be thinking about to maximize on the immersive potential yeah. uh, of content creation. Yeah. Um, so one thing we we didn't talk about yet that is in a in another paper, but is I think quite relevant for brands to think about is how to get people to create the content in the moment, but save the anxiety provoking parts of content creation for later. So. Um, it's going to be hard if you're sharing data to get people to just not care about any of the social elements, because that's just our human nature to care about what other people think about us. So given that that's part of, you know, any sharing, um, how can I as a brand uh, think about uh, a way to get all of the positives from the content creation in the moment? And leave some of the sharing parts um, that create self-presentational concern. How can I shift that to being part of the after experience? And so I really think that's like a good way to kind of conceptualize it. So, so first of all, if you're a brand, you want to think about what your goal is. Um, if your goal is visual, um, you know, get people to take photos. If it's auditory um, and you're, you know, an artist or a musician, maybe you want it, you want to get people to put their phones away and record because that actually will enhance their auditory experience. So you want to first start with your goal as like a marketer, as a, as a brand, 
And then once you decide kind of what behavior in the moment benefits consumers um, and you get them to capture the content, you want to sort of figure out a way to divide up the content creation from the sharing. And so when I'm sharing, I'm thinking about, oh, is this going to get enough likes and who's going to who's going to comment on my on my photo? Those are things that we want to leave for after the experience. We don't want people to be thinking about these salient sharing goals in the moment. So I really encourage brands to to keep that as much as possible separate, maybe encourage content creation through normative messaging or incentives. But um, but the hashtags can be shared after the fact. It's, um, of course, something that will encourage sharing and posting. Um, But to the extent that, uh, you know, Wi-Fi or connectivity is limited during the moment, it could actually get people to really focus on of course, capturing it because you want to document and that's all about the content creation. And then afterwards you go home and you post it and you share it and you get all the benefits from that as well. Um, but it's, it's a little bit more divided. So I, I would say those are maybe kind of three segments or tips to think about the pre goals, think about the moment and how to encourage the behavior, but then leave the self presentational part for afterwards. Finally, let's, let's look quickly at the content creator themselves. Let's empower them a little bit. Uh-huh. You know, they're being judged. I sit here at the beginning of this conversation and I judged kind yeah. of uh, this Starbucks um, yeah. uh, content creator on some level. Uh, maybe I didn't really judge it, but on, on some level, maybe I was when I was sitting there. How do we empower them? And what are they doing hmm. that is that is interesting based on your research, you know, their need to signal, their signaling to the world. Yeah. What's interesting about them that they can actually leverage and share with either potential brands they want to partner with or their family members who are judging them? That's super interesting. I would point to some basic psychology research that um, is really focused on kind of two dimensions of what we do when we're sharing. So one is, just a general desire to make a positive impression with people. Um, so we want to actually, I, I would like you to like me. I would like you to avoid disliking me. So there's kind of the approach and the avoidance that we do just all the time. And then there's also the part of self-presentation that comes with um, curating our identities. And so this might be the part that I would point to content creators um, to realize that so much of what they're doing and communicating is not, it's not just a look at me, think highly of me, which I think is very natural and, um, and makes sense also. But to the extent that you're, you're telling people about who you are and kind of what you, what your brand is as a content creator, what is your, um, what is your identity? I mean, these are really basic things that have been studied so long in psychology. How do we how do we share our identities? Is it, you know, it's coming from the brands that we use. It's coming from our communication. And so when we're creating content, all we're trying to do is, is to tell people a little bit more about who we are and bond over the ways that you're similar. Then that could be a way to really think about those behaviors in a more positive light and to, and to see, um, you know, some empowerment in the way that, uh, that, you know, influencers, content creators, all these people are, are actually, you know, connecting people in a way that, um, that those who are more private and, and don't create content um, are not. So, so I like that. <laughs> which, which side of the spectrum are you? Has this research changed 
how you post and create content? It's hard for me to post at this point without without thinking about all the millions of things I'm communicating. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing for people whose uh, brand is centered around that. But for me as a researcher, I like to be a little more introspective. And so that's uh, that's something that I've kind of moved towards with time. Um, we'll see what happens in the future, though. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for joining us yeah. on the Brain and Brand Show. Nice to talk with you. It was a blast. A huge thanks to Professor Barish, who I hope becomes a regular contributor to the show. She's refreshing, and her ongoing research linking behavior and technology will always be welcomed. Please share your thoughts in the comments section or email me, podcast at timothymaurice.com. And please rate us. The platform will promote us more as the number of ratings go up. Until next time.